Who's here, Hippola? Hi, Nancy Rahman. Did you do something different to your hair? Oh, my hair is so bushy. Oh, my God, it's so long. I just had, asked uh, my daughter's dear friend, Blake, who's like my my son. He's like this hairdresser to the stars. Like when Gwyneth Paltrow goes to the Oscars, he cuts her hair. He actually does that girl, Um, what's her name on uh, Stranger Things? Millie somebody or other. She's Brown. like the one that plays 11. Yeah, he does her hair all the time. Anyway, I'm like, Blake, I you gotta cut my hair. He cuts my hair. He doesn't want anyone else to cut it. So I'm like, you gotta cut my hair before I leave uh, for Oklahoma and Texas on Wednesday. So my hairstylist is named Rio, and she was named after the Duran Duran song Rio. Of course she was. I mean, it, the minute you said that, that song started going through my head. So, um, but yeah, it's growing like bananas. So yeah, I need a haircut. Um, hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, we had a we had a good weekend, didn't we, Sarah Hubla? Good weekend. Yeah. We ran up the numbers. And we owned the internet. <laughs> we want to thank everyone. Um, we we kind of want to do that every episode, but really thank you, everybody who not only have has been listening to the podcast, but who read the essays that we posted this weekend. Um, Sarah, what was the name of yours on not being a mother? Uh-huh. Which got read like bananas. You should go read it now. And uh, Colin Friedrichsdorfus in his great... Uh, that's, that's the it. correct pronunciation. That's how you say it. Um, he, he has this... You guys should go... Uh, you should go subscribe to his... I don't know what it's called. Connor Friedrichsdorf. He's at The Atlantic. He does a weekly roundup of uh, news stories, which is just great. It lands in your boxes on Sundays mornings, and it's wonderful. And Sarah's story was featured. So I've been cool. reading that newsletter for about three years now. I signed up for it around the time I started listening to the fifth column. And so every Sunday, I'll like spend some time reading like all his featured stories. And they're so fascinating. He's such a great curator of ideas and essays and different perspectives. And he's so smart and a lovely man. He actually came through Dallas recently. And Anyway, I, you know, every Sunday I would have like 20 tabs open because I've been reading Connor's, uh, whose actual name is Friedersdorf. Um, the the name, you know, the stories that he had linked, I just had all these open tabs and then they were so educational. So it was so cool um, to see my my little story on not being a mother, my little essay, which, by the way, was very much inspired by our last podcast. Yeah, well, we talked about Roe v. Wade and various other things. And, the, and my abortion, because yeah, I yeah. I think I was so, like, I was really, really glad to have done that podcast. But as I discussed in the article, like, there was, my body was, like, unsettled for, like, two days. And I think one of the best ways for me to stabilize um, is writing. Is Is writing something that I felt like, Maybe in the moment I didn't get a chance to say, not because I was cut off, but just because like a podcast only has so much time. And, you know, so for me, it's a way to kind of find equilibrium, expand on an idea that's very complicated to me, and also just like share this feeling that I had that it was Mother's Day and, you know, that I have a really, really deep and twisty ambivalence around not being a mother because I wanted to be one. Uh, I also recognize that um, I have enough friends that have kids that I recognize that it's a tremendous gift in my life to be without children many times. Uh, so, you know, anyway. 
Well, I, I thought it was interesting too that I, I was the one that had to alert you that you were actually on that list because this was like the one week in three years that you'd skipped reading it for some reason. And so I, I did. It's because I woke up that morning <laughs> and I was like negotiating. Um, I was doing so many things, and um, and it I it goes to my it goes to my promotions folder, so I always have to like. I need to add them to my contacts. I've just learned how to do that. But this is a problem with a ton of Substacks for me that Gmail sorts the mail and a lot of my Substacks go to the wrong folder. And so I have to know to click on them. And if I don't, I'll forget. And that morning I just happened to forget. And so like, but what you do is you you basically add the email to your contacts list because even right. our stories were going to my promotions folder. I was like, so I, I cannot to, even email myself. I have to say, so uh, obviously the Substack problem has been around for a couple of years. It's something that Matt Welch and I have been talking about trying to solve over on Paloma. We do curate stuff over there for people, but this, uh, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make this a promotion for a Substack, but their app is pretty good. So you don't actually have to get like the thing that drops in your mailbox. If you've got the app on your phone, everything that you're following is right there. So it's all yeah. just sort of included. And actually people really do um really do read this stuff um i'll also just uh not promote but mention i did a a true crime book um kind of roundup and talked about some some books and the responses that we got back people telling me books to read or books that they want to read or that i should read has been great including um i just downloaded a bill james book about a serial killer that i'm going to listen to in the car while i'm driving from tulsa to houston and i just picked up the snakehead which is patrick radden keefe's another of his books takes place exactly in my area of Chinatown. And um, it's really, really good. And I might um, I might float the idea of reading that with some of our um, readers and listeners because uh, there seems to be a little appetite for that. So Yeah, I love the idea yep. of a true crime book club. Um, the other one that was mentioned by a couple people was Killers of the Flower Moon, which yes. is one that I've been meaning to read for years because my journalist friends just adore it. The author, David Gran, is really amazing. And... Um, the other thing I wanted to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that story owned the internet. It what? owned the internet. You're looking at me so blankly. I'm I trying to say that you got a lot of traffic. Oh, yeah, I did. That was well, that, yeah, because uh, over they, they picked it up over at Flipboard. So I, yeah, I it was, really, a, it was yeah, a loving really hyperbole. Cool. Very but, sweet. But yes, it did great traffic. I wanted to say something about Killers of the Flower Moon. So my, um, my daughter is filming um, the second season of Reservation Dogs in Oklahoma right now. And Which is a wonderful show on Hulu. FX, Hulu. It's amazing. Nothing like it. And I'm actually heading back out to see her this week, so during season two. But when I was there in season one, they were filming Killers of the Flower Moon down the road oh, cool. with um, Leonardo DiCaprio and oh, so Robert cute. De Niro. I think. Um, but yeah, the, I have not read that book, but my ex, my late ex, my daughter's dad, I gave it to him and he he loved it. And he's not was not a big reader. And he's like, Nanny, you got to read this book. So yes, that's on the list. Um, maybe we'll make a little list. We'll just keep um, doing this stuff. Because I had fun writing that that little list for everyone. I didn't realize how many how many of these books I've read. So yeah, um, it was a really yeah. impressive list. I mean, it was a little bit depressing for me because I hadn't read a lot of them and I was like, oh my God, I need to read more books. I think you should do a book club and I think I should do a movie club. There because we go. I did, I watched, uh, rewatched Citizen Kane on Mother's Day. Why is everybody talking about Citizen Kane? My friend Larry Karaszewski is also talking about Citizen Is it like his birthday, Orson Welles' birthday? Or, or yes, it, it was Orson Welles' birthday. Okay. okay. And um, somebody tweeted a really long thread about like 
amazing things that he'd said about other directors over the years that went a little bit viral because he was a real salty dog. And, and, you know, he's kind of like, he's kind of like dismissing Woody Allen and Roman Polanski and, um, Antonioni and all these different like auteurs over the years. And it got me thinking like, ah, Orson Welles. See, I'm a child of the eighties. So I mostly knew Orson Welles from those silly Ernest and Julio Gallo. Oh my God. When he literally weighed like 400, he was just like a mountain of a man at that point. He was so big. He was really one of the very first, like truly high profile obese people. Like him and Roger Ebert were like, like fat shaming pioneers. I mean, body body acceptance pioneers. Okay. Because in a in an eighties landscape of just mostly thin people, like they really punched through that uh, monolith. And so he would do these like, "We will sell no wine before it's time." And I was like, "Oh well, this guy's just obviously like a professional wine drinker. Like that must be what he does." I don't. There, there he has no other. That must be what he, I know a lot of those people. Oh, I was one of those people practically. <laughs> I mean, I practically monetized that shit. But um it wasn't until I, you know, became more of a cinephile in my in my college years, uh mostly thanks to like a lot of the dudes I was hanging out with that I understood, oh, okay, Citizen Kane, yada yada. I had seen it. Um but I probably like a lot of movies that I saw in my 20s, uh I was drunk. I probably fell asleep. Whoa. I wasn't really paying attention. Um, there's like a bunch of movies I haven't seen all the way through, including Apocalypse Now. Uh, I have never made it through the last 30 minutes of Apocalypse Now without falling asleep. Oh. Now, even in my sober years, I have a terrible problem of falling asleep. I fell asleep three times during Citizen Kane um, on Sunday. But here's the thing. I am I really needed to sleep. And so it was really wonderful because I would just fall asleep and then I would wake up and be like okay I gotta go back to earlier and I watched it I finished it last night I was like this movie is so tremendous I just need to talk to a bunch of people about how good it is I was like tweeting at movie critics I knew like they want to talk about Citizen Kane like I'm just like but Bill Jabiri who is uh, a New York magazine critic read my motherhood essay and and he was like oh this is oh. a great piece on Twitter and I was like oh thanks Bill J um hey but- I just watched <laughs> this in case do you have any thoughts like what am I doing but I I just you know uh, I don't know I'm only oh oh here's one of the reasons why I got super into it cuz I did not know the story that Orson Welles had basically been pushed out of Hollywood after this happened and that the main actress in it a woman named Dorothy Coringa Coring game, Coringone. She plays Kane's second wife. And if you don't know the story of this, it's it's loosely based on the media tycoon William Randolph Hearst, Randolph although Hearst. there's a couple of other people. But anyway, um, he is married to this woman, and the the uh, the, the actress is so good. And I was like, oh, what happened to her? And I go to her Wikipedia page and it's like, yeah, that was her last role. Uh, William Randolph Hertz hated this portrayal and and got her pushed out of Hollywood. And then she was brought up by the House on American Activities. She refused to name names and she was blackballed by Hollywood and she died from alcoholism. Okay. I- I'm going to just, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I need to learn more about the McCarthy era and the House on American Activities Council or com- whatever it is, whack, because we're going to talk about a couple stories today about people's careers getting cut down in mid-flight. And I have to say, like, I know this sounds facile and I don't want to make the comparison 
if it hasn't really earned it, but I think it's starting to really earn it that this that this whole Me Too reckoning, it, it feels like so many people's careers are getting axed, poleaxed, because of suggestions that they're not a communist, but a predator, abuser, racist bigot, fill in the blank. Well, I think we've been, I, I actually think we've been here for a while. I, I think, I actually think it's, it's, um, I think it's getting a little better. Um, I think that you can't continue to make accusations that do not, and, you know, some accusations have a basis in reality. And I think we are, in many cases, people are trying to make up for lost time. Right. It's like we're let let's just jump into it. We're here. Okay. okay but so, before we do that, do you want to yeah. say what our podcast is? Our podcast is called Smoke 'em If You Got 'em. Hey Sarah Hefla. <laughs> I got did that right. Aren't you proud of me? Um, but I did want to, it's weird. I had this weird thought of like, well, you know, now that we're talking about Orson Wells, I really want to end books. I really want to mention a great book by an actor that was in a movie with him, Sterling Hayden. He wrote this incredible memoir called Wanderer. And I just looked it up and like, I actually don't think he was ever in a movie with Orson Welles. So I don't know why I thought he was. But in any case, that's another book recommendation for you guys. And it's an underread one. And uh, it's one of my favorites, Sterling Hayden Wanderer. Really, really interesting book about, really interesting book about rejecting Hollywood uh, at a time when there really was a big like um, Hollywood... Um, what they called system or whatever it was. Oh, the um, Hollywood system was such a tyranny. He just would not have it and just like absconded and left with his kids on a sailboat and just ditched. It's a really interesting, it's actually a beautifully written book. And this is back in the day. I believe that, I know this sounds ridiculous because of course, you know, stars and famous people have always had people writing their books for them. We know this. And some people like Amber Heard have them write their uh, Washington Post editorials for them. But this book, I actually believe Sterling Hayden actually wrote for himself because it's so viscerally angry. It is definitely not a glossy portrait of movie star life. Um, it's really well done. I think it's probably- And what probably, year is this? God, I should look it up. I'm going to say- Early 1960s. It could be. Um, it could be late 1950s. Let's look this up. Um, da, da, da. Other books that this reminds me. I mean, Eve Babbitt has a book uh, that's sort of about being on the fringes of Hollywood. I haven't read it yet, but people recommend it to me. The other one 1963. is 1963. 1963. Yeah. Linda Obst or Obst. I think she wrote a book called "You'll Never Eat Lunch in This." Oh, town that was again. a great book. That was oh man! That I read that I was just new to I living in 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 Hollywood I guess, and that was that was a really fun book. I mean, it was teeth bared, but she was also funny. You know, it wasn't she's just, very funny. Yeah, I think bitter. middle finger to Hollywood stories are a great subgenre. They're great if they especially if they can do it with some humor. It's not just or or some. I don't know. Self-awareness. Yeah. Not just like, oh, look at these terrible things that happened to me, which is just so freaking boring. I actually read an essay about that uh, this weekend. I can't remember which one. We've been reading so many essays lately, but it's just, it's just boring. Oh, what was it? Was the victim essay. Didn't you send me one about the, the sort of the, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I have no brain. It's Monday morning. I'll, we'll, we'll get to that another time. I'll find out what we're going to talk about, but let's talk about what you brought up, which were two different stories one that broke last week or a little before last week, but he put his letter out last week, which was Frank Langella, was uh, fired 
from his um, or dismissed from his lead in a Netflix series, correct? Am I getting that correct? That's right. It's an eight-part series on the fall of the House of Usher, one of my favorite short stories. And he was playing Roderick Usher, the patriarch. I mean, this really sounds like an amazing project. And Frank Langella, if people don't know him, it's worth looking him up. I mean, this is somebody that it's very hard to identify like one movie that you know him from because, in fact, he's been in so many movies. And he's like, and he's in his 80s. or He's 84. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so he came to prominence, I believe, in 1979's Dracula. He plays Dracula. But that's not how I knew him. I think I saw him in, like, he was in the 80s movie Dave. And, like, he's just always playing this suit. You know, he... He's he's kind of like an indiscriminate uh, look. He's tall with bushy eyebrows and kind of a he's got a little bit figure. of that Mephistophelian look to him, which he is does. I can see why he would play Dracula. But he could, uh, but he also has like a, a basic like generic corporate look to him. Yeah, a bit. He's got that arched kind of yeah, eyebrow. So you could see him playing like like Secret Service or a politician. Oh, he played Nixon. You know, he's really good in Frost Nixon. Oh, he yeah, plays yeah. Nixon. I haven't seen it. Yeah. That's yeah. a great movie about okay. the Frost Nixon debates. Okay. Um in, and so anyway, any- yeah, so it's a it's a really great cast. Carla Gugino, Gugino, Gagaga, um <laughs> Carla. I call her Carla. Gugino. Um, she's beautiful, great actress. Um, she's in it. I forget the other people that are in it. Um, this is a, a he was dismissed. He was fi- he was fired. Do you want to do you want to explain what happened? Well, I I only read I read the story twice. So apparently he was in a love scene. I don't think it was particularly graphic love scene. He she I think he was sitting and she was standing something like that. She, his much younger lover. It's and his this, wife, and it's his young oh, wife, his wife in the. Okay, in the he's story. and it was pretty carefully choreographed. The kind of moves, which because now since past however many years, I don't know if it's been since Me Too or not, there are the intimacy coordinators. So you don't. It's not just like okay and roll them. You know, sticks. We're gonna like pretend you're making out or doing whatever. It's very, very carefully choreographed now, I guess, for people's comfort levels. Which seems like a good idea because you can imagine how that stuff goes really awry. Oh, man. I mean, back in the day, it it had to have been insane. But I did want to, just before we go back to Frank Lagello, when I was thinking about this story, I was thinking about probably one of the best love or sex scenes, actually, uh, in a uh, non-X-rated movie was in uh, Don't Look Now. Do you know that movie? I sure do, because we put it as number one in our list of best sex scenes in the nerves, great sex scenes of all time. But I watched the movie specifically for that scene. I never heard of the movie. The movie's so worthwhile. Nicholas Rogue movie. It's just fabulous. Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. It's it's a mid-70s film when they were making great films back in the day. But this particular sex scene between them is, is really... Really good, and it, and it, and it's good because it's got this this intimacy that you actually understand. It's like the before, the during, the after. Just I just remember her like putting on her makeup afterwards, and that little look that she gets, like remembering what they were doing half an hour ago. It's really beautiful. Anyway, apparently in the scene, Frank Langella and his young wife, they were in the middle of doing it, and she just stopped everything and turned to the director and said, "He touched my leg," and walked off the set, and. 
I guess the scene stopped and he's like, wait, what's going on? And somebody followed her and then she wouldn't come back to the set. And, um, I guess they wrapped that scene and, um, I guess he never, he never went back to working. Is that correct? Am I getting this That's correct. right? They're refilming his scenes with a new actor whose name I didn't know. Um, a, a couple more things that I, that I, because I read a few other pieces. Now, other pieces mentioned that he also said to her, did you like that? Huh. After Me- he touches her, like, so the, the touching her knee is unscripted. It's not in the very specific blocking. And that he makes a joke. Did you like that? So was it supposed to be um, sort of like a little bit of impromptu, spontaneous dialogue to kind of stay inside the scene like this is going to no be idea. cute or sweet? You, we don't know. We would have no idea. Yeah. And then um, he was also known for telling some some racy jokes. He's an 84-year-old man. I don't oh know, like, how could that happen? How could it be that an 84-year-old man would tell stories that are deemed a little bit off color by a different generation? My God, this is starting to feel like elder abuse when you take these people down for, like, uh, socialization that has been in their, a part of their their workplace for a, 50 years. I'm thinking of my dad who died in 2020. He would have been 85 now, and he worked on the New York Stock Exchange. He was a real New York City D's, Dems, and those kid. And, uh, oh, my God, his jokes were so, so, so horrible. I mean, sometimes they were funny, but they were just, like, so off color. And um, But, you know, for me, first of all, he's my dad, and I'm a generation of his kids. And, like, everybody in, like, my generation knows that, like, these are what dads are doing, right? But maybe if you're in your 20s, that's just like, what the fuck was that? Like literally like being sideswiped by a truck. I don't know. I guess. Um, I don't know. So this is according to his letter, which ran in, was it Hollywood Reporter? Deadline. Deadline Deadline Hollywood. Yeah. The article I read, it was in Deadline. Yeah. Okay. So these are are his infractions, according to Frank Langella. One, he told an off-color joke. He's making, he's quoting uh, a document. He told an off-color joke. Two, Sometimes he called me baby or honey. Three, he'd give me a hug or touch my shoulder. Okay. Um, I just want it on the record. I love being called baby and honey. I love being called honey baby and baby honey. I call people baby indiscriminately. I call you babe. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm from Texas. Yeah. I like the softness. Uh, I, I call people buddy pal. Like I'm one of those people that needs an amplifier to like everything I say. So just so you know, like, hey, excuse me, babe. Or like, excuse me, sir. Or excuse me, um, friend. Like I'll always use some sort of word instead of just excuse me. Because yeah. that sounds rude to me. And I want to make sure that somebody knows that it's softened by a commonality between us. And I'm a woman, so I guess I can get away with that a little bit easier. But, like, I get it. Oh, I'm also a toucher. Oh, my God. 
I went to a dinner last night. It was a Reason magazine thing. There are a whole bunch of people there, people we know. Uh, and I think I kissed 10 people when I walked in. It's like, well, what, what, what do you mean kissed? There wasn't tongue. I just, you know, said, hey, how was are you? Was it a Johnny Depp Amber Heard on the, on was, the set of Rum Diary? <laughs> no, kiss? it was, you know, it was Nick Gillespie and some people from Reason and some other friends. And it was like, hey, nice to see you. I mean, you don't even think about it. Are there photos oh, yeah. of this? And the stuff, yeah, actually, okay, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Take a photo. I'm just but, being but, inappropriate. I'm, I'm trying to make a joke being, to be you, inappropriate because I want to get myself canceled right now. Yeah, I'm, it's too late. Um, I wonder, I mean, obviously, if we go back in the day or whatever, it's like, you know, hey, honey, get me a cup of coffee, you know, sort of like a bit derogatory or whatever, thoughtless. But if somebody calls you babe, what inherently in there is so upsetting? I don't understand how that could be upsetting. I could understand her. You'd be like, oh my God, this guy is a thousand years old. Or you could be like, I don't really care for that. But what about it feels like abuse? Because that's what we're talking about here, Sarah. We're talking about something that is a fireable infraction. And apparently somebody thinks that you called you babe or honey is is or this is according to Langella. I mean, we we were not there. We're getting his rendition of this. I didn't actually. Did you read the statement that Netflix? There was a link, and I didn't. I didn't click it. The statement that Netflix had put out regarding no. his. I should do that while you're no. But okay. the the quote that he you know what he quotes them as saying is, intention is not our concern. Netflix deals only with impact. Intention doesn't matter. Oh my God, we're back. Hey, Dean Beckay, intention doesn't matter, only impact. Okay, so here's the thing, right? So he said, babe, I felt I'm about to rape you in the fucking ear. That's what she heard. And that's what matters, right? That's what fucking matters here, okay? You know, by the way, it was carried on TMZ with the line, Frank Langella has been fired by Netflix for fondling a young actress between takes and she stormed off the set the way that's written sounds like he fondled an actress between takes exactly just like just like the daily beast called uh donald mcneil a racist or accused him of racism in the in the uh, in the subhead right no, no exactly. context no context that's and this fine. is so kafka-esque like he was not given a hearing he asked to meet one-on-one with the actress and he's denied that denied. opportunity the directors and the producers don't answer his emails and phone calls. I mean, this guy, like 30 minutes after he's fired, a letter goes out to the cast and crew and a full, pr- like, like Hollywood is on hyper vigilance alert and they will cut off your head in a second if somebody makes the right complaint. And this is, this is a wild overcorrection for an industry that turned a blind eye to this kind of stuff for decades watch a documentary on the making of the last tango in paris if you want to see or just watch the last tango in paris that's the one where the woman involved talks about like how marlon brando and uh i think that's bertolucci schemed to have him shove a stick of butter up her ass without letting her know that was going to happen so they could get her real reaction on film there is absolutely no doubt, I think, in anyone's mind that how Hollywood has treated, well, a lot of people, the newbies, mostly women, I'm sure some men in some cases, is just, it's beyond the pale. Um, and the currency in, in, in 
back in the day, probably even to some extent now, was, well, what will you give me to get this part? And, you know, that's how it operated for a long time. It's not like that anymore. But yes, the overcorrection will be at the cost, at least in my estimation right now, I could be wrong. We could be going to some wondrous new horizon in filmmaking. If you can't, if you can't actually have any, and I don't mean physical contact, I mean any sort of contact with your co-actor, co-co-workers whatsoever that is not under every microscope, what do you do? Do you all just stand there like mannequins? Because anything I do, what if I'm at the craft table service with you and I'm a I'm a I'm a 40-year-old successful actress and you're a 25-year-old not successful actor and I'm like, do you want a banana? Is that could that not was, be uh, I'm actually <laughs> can't believe you brought that up because now I can't <laughs> stop thinking about bananas and penises. And I think that you just did me yeah. harm. See, babe. I, I, I'm telling you, it's, it's yeah. May bring up something very interesting, a uh, sort of uneven dynamic about this story. Yep. So I think one of the really reasonable questions is, okay, which of the actresses did this? Well, wh that's interesting because we do not at all. And I was looking for it because they do have that this oh they mentioned in a different story sorry i already jumped over to fred savage but yeah i don't know who so is she it was, it was apparently she was named in the tmz story but then her name was taken out i can't find screenshots of it i didn't look that hard i did do internet searches because i knew other people were asking this question so i found it on reddit i found it on a lot of people are speculating about who it is but you really well, can't if he was find if she was this information there's a couple of different young actresses but we're pretty pretty sure but it's one of them <laughs> I don't want to say her name in case. No, no, don't. I'm, don't, I'm playing don't. the game that they're doing, though, because look at this. She has made. Why is this? Why is her complaint not public? Am I really supposed to believe that she is a survivor at this point? She is a survivor of somebody placing a hand on her knee well, and asking her, did she like that? And she, why is her name? If you're going to make a complaint that gets a man fired immediately. Why is your name not part of the record, but his is? I understand where that comes from, Nancy, and I know I'm sounding victim blamey right now, except here's the problem. We've expanded victimhood to such an alarming degree that anybody can wear that mantle. That was a, the idea of protecting a victim's identity was an idea put in place because of the cruelty of media in the early days that would put that name out there I believe this was something that happened around the Central Park jogger case. It was very, you know, this is very important. This was something that was instigated, this idea that you would not share the name of the victim because they didn't need more pain and scrutiny. And I get it. But you fast forward 30, 40 years. And I'm sorry, but that reasonable protection has become a shield behind which you can hide and you don't have to you don't have to say well I'm x and I said that this person did this to me and you know because if and and the, and the idea is well like oh she's going to get blasted okay well if she doesn't want to take the blast maybe she doesn't make that HR complaint maybe she takes it directly to Frank Langella so they can maybe work it out like well, in a reasonable restorative justice manner that's so I'm I'm always a very big believer in opening your mouth and saying something <laughs> to the person involved as opposed to running off and having other people um fight your your battles for you where they can just become part of, you know, a bigger political 
machine or movement. Um, but the, sorry, just to jump back, the 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 piece I was referring to about victimhood and trauma is the one you sent me from the New Yorker, or which we are going to talk about. We're talking mm-hmm. about what is trauma and how the definition, sort of like the definition of dyslexia or PTSD or whatever, has been so elasticized. And 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 he was talking specifically about, oh, she was talking specifically about PTSD, where there's now something like three hundred sixty nine thousand different. Um, um, symptoms or yeah. things that can fit under that umbrella. Um, I don't know why she didn't just say, get your hand off my leg, because that was sure would have moved things along a lot faster, right? Um, I do understand, well, obviously I do understand um, protecting someone who has been the victim of a horrible crime because they have been traumatized. I, I don't see this as having been a horrible crime. But the reason I think it's a good idea not to say these things is, and I, and I do this online, like I, I try not to name people that are acting idiotically because if you do then you call up the troops and they start showing up at these kids schools right. and i just We're don't right. want to absolutely do that. because um, we live in an unreasonable world which is why i did not want to share the the very probably accurate speculation of who this young woman is but well isn't it i'm sorry if she was playing his wife in this show, they've removed it's the cast. IMDb, like, so it's not done, even. They've scrubbed IMDb. stuff. They have scrubbed okay, stuff because that you is, can't okay. find things on stuff okay. has been memory hold. So, so then what? Then that that seems to be. So what they're doing here is saying, okay, an accusation was made, certainly from Frank Langella's telling. It doesn't seem that like that big a deal, and no one else, as far as I know, has come out and said anything. So you don't have crew members going actually stuck his hand up her butt or something like that. There's nothing. Right, which is a possibility. Right, right. and so, but nobody has. Uh, they've all gone to ground for whatever reason, but they made a pretty big decision to fire the star who's been around forever, who apparently was doing a good job. I mean, they cast him, but now they're going to keep everything, a lid on this so tight. Why? That's very, it's a little queasy making to me. It's like, no, just trust us. Just trust us that we... We it's it's Netflix. It's Netflix, correct? It's a Netflix show, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think so. It is. We Netflix are so in solidarity with with siding, no matter how slight. Like I said, could be bigger. We don't know that we will we will fire the star and never say anything about it, or at least for now, you know it's going to come out, Sarah. It's going to bubble out. Something's oh, going to happen. Um, um, but it seems pretty, it seems like a company that's on the run. It seems like a company that's afraid of weird, of weird, weird lawsuits as they probably should be afraid well, in this Netflix environment. is under siege right now. Oh yeah. They, they kinda, fired a lot of yeah. their, their, they brought on all these progressive projects and uh, writers of color. And then they, they fired them without warning because they Why? hit some sort of, I don't know, they missed their, uh, their, their stock dipped. And I, I don't exactly understand what happened because it seemed like, I swear to God, like a hot second ago, Netflix was on top of the world. And I, I think they just moved too fast and too loose. You know, And I've, they started spending way too much money. And I think they just kind of got over their skis and they took on too many projects and then they had to start shedding them. Um, and a, some of the, early, you know, last one hired, first one fired kind of thing. Yeah. A lot of them were these projects that had been brought on by like upstart writers of color. It just, and then, and then those writers took to Twitter and then that created a whole. Right. It makes them look like. Makes them terrible. 
Right. It makes them look terrible. It's like, okay, so you only took on this project because you wanted to look like you were a good person taking on a thing of color. Oh, and now you're letting them go. So in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm bad about this. I started an article yesterday that was talking about the, the shade and Florida that, that other production companies were, were feeling because Netflix had taken a big dive, but I didn't oh, yeah. finish the piece. So I will find it and I'll put it in the show notes and we can find out a little bit more why Netflix is somehow tanking. I'm a pretty big fan of Netflix. I watch a lot of their shows. Um, so. I saw a meme of all the different streaming companies standing around a grave, and the gravestone said Netflix. And then <sighs> all the people around the gravestone, it was like HBO Max and Hulu, and they were all like cheering. So. You know what's just, I think it's just come back on. I'm going to give a pitch for, I haven't seen the second season, that is Russian Doll. Um, have you seen Russian Doll? No, oh you've my told me god. a few times to oh see my it. God. And, it's and just, do like Natasha Leone. She it's so any okay, so to listeners out there, uh when it first came out, it was actually a couple of years ago. Um couple it, years ago. it took a bit of a hiatus. I I was in the middle of the first episode and I was like, oh my God, are they gonna use this device? Like, oh yawn, yawn. No, no, no. Wrong. St- stay with it. It is like by the by the middle of the first uh, first. And maybe maybe it wouldn't strike you that way, but it is tremendous. It's a tremendously fun show. It's very original. And that's, you know, something we love to see sort of like Reservation Dogs is. And by the way, I'm going to be doing some reporting for you guys um, on, um, um, we're actually going to be, it's going to be smoking if you got them on the road, right? I'm going to be on the road and you're going to be on the road. Where are you going to be, Sarah? I'm going to be at Fairfax County Courthouse. Why? What's Uh, going on there, Sarah? There's a little thing called the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Yep. You're going to go. Yeah, I just learned that every morning Johnny Depp shows up in his SUV with a different song playing, blasting out uh, the side of the car. And it's like, <sighs> uh, like, and then everyone starts cheering. Is it like, We Are the Champions? Is that? Uh, what, yeah, like, one yeah. of them was like a Prince song. I forget which one yeah, it was. Yeah. I think it was Purple Rain. But, um, you know, it's the person that was on. I learned this from Nick Wallace's podcast reporting Depp v. Heard, which is great. But the person was had covered some other celebrity trials and was saying this was slightly reminiscent of Michael Jackson doing the moonwalk before his trial uh, for mm. child abuse. And that was one oh, of the first icky. like celebrity circus. Like all the people coming to the courthouse were fans. Sure. Sure. Um so it's a real, I don't know if I'll ever make it into the courthouse, but even the scene outside the courthouse is pretty oh, yeah. fascinating to me from a cultural critic standpoint. You're going to get some good interviews. Yeah, I think good. so. We'll, we'll put some stuff here. It's not, um, the, 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 the trial is on hiatus this week. When are you going? And Monday? I'm going next week on Tuesday. Okay. Tuesday through oh. Thursday, which okay. originally the verdict was supposed to be read, but I don't think it will be. I think it'll be another week of testimony and then the verdict will be read. But I'll be there for sort of the cross-examination of Amber Heard, which I think will be really fascinating. Um, wow. What you know, she case? has finished up, I believe, her direct testimony on Friday. These last two days were a real spicy meatball. And we heard some very dramatic allegations about Johnny's physical abuse and even sexual abuse. Interestingly, these sexual abuse claims did not come up in the UK case, you know, because he had had sued the son over libel. 
And right. they had a whole trial. And she never mentioned this, but she mentions it in her direct examination, her direct testimony, excuse me. And it includes uh, a moment in the desert. This is after that threesome moment that you and I talked about last yeah. week where they go back to the tent and he's looking for his cocaine and he performs, allegedly performs a cavity search in her vagina looking for his cocaine. Oh, my God. That's one of the stories that she tells. Um, she tells stories of multiple physical, you know, slaps, things that threw her across the table, threw her against a wall, blood's flying everywhere. They're very dramatic. Uh, again, very dramatic counterpoint to the audio that we've heard in which she talks about hitting him. Um, one of the things she says, she says it a couple times, she makes a point that the slaps or whatever they were did not hit her. I mean, did not hurt her. It only embarrassed her. So it's it's an interesting thing I mean, that a few people have noticed that she always makes a point that the physical violence didn't hurt. It was only embarrassing. And I, I don't I don't know why that would be I'd, I'd have to think more about it it seems like something a guy would say you know like uh Wait, I, sorry I, I haven't listened to it um so she's saying when they're in private his yeah. slapping her didn't hurt it was embarrassed why would you be embarrassed if it was in private just because you wouldn't feel like as big a person that you as you should be or that you even were in this situation yeah it's a good question they were usually parts of maybe embarrassment in public that had bled into private, if that makes sense. Like, like the MDMA event in the, in the desert, she was embarrassed when he confronted the woman that was like allegedly hitting on her. Yeah. And she's, she's embarrassed by the whole thing. And, and I think she's also saying that he uses a lot of belittling terms, like you're a C word, you're this, that, and the other thing. And so she, she feels embarrassed by that. So I just think it's really interesting that the violence, which seems to be like such a, like, was there violence or was there not? And that's going to be the the hinge on which this, this trial might even pivot. She's saying, well, yeah, there was violence, but it didn't hurt. And it is also in line with this idea that like words are violence and words are the thing that are more painful to her. Um, but I, I wouldn't really be able to figure out, I can't really figure out what's going on there only that it reminds me of either a prideful person or um like a dude that's like oh well that didn't hurt me or you know maybe it maybe it generates trust with the jury and the audience because she's not she's not you know groveling for for um pity right she's like it didn't hurt that bad it happened, but it didn't hurt. Also, I, I can imagine there's a shock element going on here if she did get slapped. You know, that you'd be like, you don't even really... Like, I've hit the... Like, I, I tripped on the subway steps once and, like, just, like, banged the shit out of my knee. And I was like... I popped up and I was like, that didn't hurt. Oh, and absolutely. And then later I was totally. like, I think I fucking broke my kneecap. 
I, I, I did something like that once. Yeah. I, I sprained my ankle in front of like a bunch of people yes. we were, and I, I you could hear it pop really loud and like everybody stopped. I was like, no, I'm fine. It was really not Oh, it's fine. horrible. Um, I do want to mention something. I think you were the one that sent it to me. So talking about getting hit, um, when you've been hit, your body like involuntarily reacts for a while. Like if somebody walks too close to you, you go like, huh. Like you don't even know, you're, you're not planning to flinch, but you've been hit and your body is still in the mode where it's like kind of like uh, self-protecting. That's right. And you sent these two little clips of them on the stand and she's going, well, yeah, when he threw the wine bottle at me and you, listeners, you can't see my hand, but she takes her hand and she throws sort of like she's throwing a tennis ball or a wine bottle. Like when he threw the wine bottle at me and she does the throwing motion, when Johnny Depp is talking about you, he's like, well, when she threw the wine ball at me, he like literally like cowers under his hands. Now, mm -hmm. all I'm saying is that I've actually never thrown a wine bottle at someone and I probably have never really thrown a punch at anyone, but I have been the person who's had to deflect and his body language was exact in what, in just what lines up with what I understand. So that was kind of weird. Like even when she was playing the victim or stating that she was the victim, she was acting as the aggressor, which was kind of interesting. There are a lot of hot sports opinions on TikTok and YouTube um, with regard to their body language at the trial. Um, there was an investigator that I saw talking about how, um, in his estimation, exactly what you said, that people unconsciously mimic the event in question as they're telling the story. He had done a lot of questioning of witnesses and, you know, points to both dynamics that you describe. Um, the other thing that's interesting, I, I listened to a great podcast and it was, it was uh, it recommended to us by our listener, recommended to me by our listeners. So I want a, a, a one listener in particular, it's called Legally Dirty Blonde. And it's like every episode is like an hour. The The woman that does it is a lawyer, I'm pretty sure. And she is, uh, I think, pretty Team Johnny, but she's also like really, really good about getting the other side. And she's a great, she's great insight. And all the episodes are like an hour long. So I only got to listen to two of them over the weekend, but she's great. And she says that one of the interesting dynamics is that Amber Heard keeps looking at Johnny from the stand and Johnny won't make eye contact with her. And he keeps looking other places. And that hundreds of survivors that listened to her show had emailed her and said, that is so familiar. That is exactly the dynamic that I had with my abuser where they would want to, you know, stare at you and make eye contact. And you, as the abused party, do not want to look. Again, it's the inverse of what you described in the court case you went to. None of this is irrefutable proof of much. I mean, it's just, it's interesting. You know, I was thinking about the difference in this trial versus something like OJ or Michael Jackson. And the major game changer is the internet that we have all like this thing is playing out in a court in Fairfax, Virginia, but more broadly. And I think far more influentially 
It's playing out in the court of public opinion at TikTok and YouTube and Twitter. You know, Amber Turd, hashtag Amber Turd, oh, hashtag Amber no. is a psychopath. No, I don't, I don't like Have that. been trending on Twitter for days. And finally on Sunday, I am still in search of the person that stands with Amber Heard. I might have found her because I went to the hashtag on Sunday, hashtag I stand with Amber Heard. And I went, oh, good. Okay, finally, there's some like balance here because like you, you made an uncomfortable noise. I'm uncomfortable with that too. I don't like it. It's gross. Um, I really, really don't like how the the fans are beating her up and calling her these things. It really upsets me. But the first post under I stand with Amber Heard was basically a meme that said Johnny Depp stands are acting like fucking psychos. Um, and then uh, one of the, the next ones was like, I will stand with Amber Heard. And both of these women had like thir- 300 followers. Like they were not, it was not like somebody with like a massively influential person. But then as you start scrolling the I stand with Amber Heard hashtag, it is 95% people bagging on her and talking about her as abusive and, you know, a lot of people saying like, oh my God, I worried when I saw I Stand with Amber Heard trending and then I realized it's a bunch of people talking about how she's an abuser. So, I mean, this woman cannot catch a break on social media. Regardless of like, you know, this idea that we're supposed to stay neutral, like forget about it in the court of public opinion. All right. So she we know back in 2018 when the the Washington Post um, opinion piece, which is what this case is all about, where she didn't directly accuse him of being a wife beater, um, but they kind of kind of wrote all around it. She was not super well known, but she was well known enough that the ACLU went in and wrote this letter for her so that it was, you know, it was, come on guys, November, I think it was November, December, 2018. Me too was literally burning down the culture and they had a message and she was going to be the messenger. So she was like well-known enough then. And one is going to assume that at the time, and I don't know this, I guess I could go back and Twitter and try to find out that she had some people rooting for her at that point, or like, you know, the Jessica Valentes of the world saying like, yeah, you know what? We gotta, we've gotta believe women and we've got to, you know, where are those voices now? Where are the voices you would, I'm dying to know that you would are those women now? Like who, and, and everyone's just kind of quietly ignoring that story. And And yet, hold on one second. And yet we still have to, they're going to ignore this story, which you would think could be kind of a big opportunity in scare quotes. And yet Netflix is willing to fire some the star and leave the person anonymous. So we're this sort of schizophrenic right now. Okay. You still want people, I mean, talk about schizophrenic. I don't know if we're going to get into the uh what is it, the uh, the domestic infant suppliers uh conversation. But uh I am surprised that you do not. Sorry, so you just got that joke. Because uh, the words made no freaking they, sense they when don't you make first any, said them. They and don't I was make like, any sense. Sorry, I should have said forced birthers. Sorry, that's what that's what I meant to say. Yeah, um, forced but, birthers. But it's it's interesting. I wonder if. I mean, I just wonder why she doesn't have more of the sort of big voices that we're accustomed to hearing to saying, you know, 
you got to believe these stories. We've got to move the ball forward and and not have these things happen to women anymore. I'm wondering why they're they're staying silent. That's interesting. If she just has come across as like, maybe they're not interested. Maybe they think it's too much theater. I don't know. I, I will say something though about, I want to say about being in court. I said to you last night that I very much do think that um, whatever the people are experiencing in court, it's now being amplified around the world by whoever wants to jump in and, and watch it online. I, I can tell you, as someone who's been in court and covered trials, it is a wrenching and intimate situation when you're in the courtroom. Um, it, you know, I, I've been there when people have been accused of murder and the keening that, ha- I mean, literal keening that comes from the back rows of, of the person's family and, and, and the people that are trying to testify. It's, it is brutal. Um, this is a bit more theatrical. Let's put it that way. Um, and we are, many people are treating it as entertainment, um, which fine. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's how people are going to treat it. Um, it would be interesting if there were a larger point to it. If this was, if it, if, if we were going to like learn something from this and actually move the cultural ball forward, then just have it be, um, be something fluffy. Cause that's all. I mean, there was a, there was a lawyer that was interviewed on the Nick Wallace podcast, episode 13, which was about Amber's first day of testimony. He was a lawyer named John and, you know, Nick asked him about the significance of the trial and he says, you know. It's going to be a part of the overall collective societal viewpoint of the Me Too movement. And that's a lot of words that I think mean just that, like, we're going to do a reckoning on Me Too. I I wish, because so here's what I'm noticing. I'm noticing a quiet abdication of this story at elite media levels. In other words, I'm not seeing the big think piece in the New York Times and the Atlantic and the New Yorker. I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing an enormous amount of commentary in the public domain. You know, interestingly, and I I have not fact-checked this, but CNN started airing the trial only as Amber started testifying, according to several people on the YouTube channel. In other words, when they started airing video of her testimony, a bunch of the first comments are, Oh, now you're airing it. Oh, where were you when Johnny was testifying? That's so that, weird. That's if that weird. is true. That is weird. Well, it's it's like that. It, it doesn't make any sense. If you're going to air the trial, you got to air the trial. How now, do you clips air- of the trial? I mean, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. You know, they're yeah. covering the trial now that Amber has yeah. taken the stand. So there's a very interesting thing going on where the power brokers in media had allied with Amber. But they are on the wrong side. Because they're scared. They're scared. They're scared. They're scared. They're They're so scared. And But I would really love, like, I would love to hear a Lindy West write about this. I would love to hear a Jessica Valenti write about this. You know, some of the, 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 I think, reasonable commentary I've seen um, is things like uh, Nick Wallace had a great feminist uh, lawyer on there talking about, I'm sorry, feminist psychiatrist talking about, you know, is borderline personality disorder really even a thing? It's a highly contested um, diagnosis. 
the phrase the the diagnosis histrionic disorder in particular has a very troubled past. I think if you know anything about the etymology of the word hysteria yeah. originating from the uterus, then you understand that words like hysteria were long used to to dismiss real and actual claims that women had yeah. in their lives and women's emotional behavior. So that was fascinating. And there was another interesting... Wait, sorry. Yeah. Are they because they've been calling, they've been diagnosing her or somebody, the internet's been diagnosing her with, with borderline personality or for her being histrionic? Dr. Why Shannon they- Curry, who was testifying, she diagnosed her with those oh. two things. Okay. Now, Amber's team had a different psychiatrist that diagnosed her with PTSD. And so one of the things you see coming out of this, and it, it, it shows up in our the New Yorker trauma plot piece that you mentioned, is just how utterly elastic psychiatric diagnoses are. So are we nearing a point where like these are meaningless because you can basically diagnose anyone with anything. It's like a horoscope. If you have two respectable psychiatric witnesses and one says borderline personality disorder and histrionic disorder and the other one says, nope, neither PTSD. It's like, what do you and they're both using well-respected diagnostics. It's like, what, what are you, where are you, what are you supposed to do? I remember interviewing a guy years ago who was like an English professor and he'd written a great book, but he was like, the DSM is like horoscopes. Hmm. It's like a collection of best guesses. Well, isn't it constantly like expanding now too? I mean, which I guess yeah, it and has it's often, to. I mean, and it's often behind the times because it has to go through this like, like bureaucratic process of vetting, you know, like I think like on the trans issue, they are, you know, on alcohol, any anything that moves fast in the culture, I'm, I'm sure. So histrionic disorder is probably still in there, but this particular psychiatrist was surprised to hear it because she thought it had really fallen out of favor. And, um, I, yeah. you know, psychiatry is just shape-shifting at warp speed along with the rest of culture. The other the other piece I just want to mention real quick that I thought was really interesting was a piece by um, Lux, and I'm going to botch her last name, but like Albtrum. This is a sex writer I've read for years. I've always respected her. She she had an interesting piece on, you know, the idea that mutual abuse is a myth. Now, this is an interesting idea that I don't know that I agree with, but I, I think it's really worth thinking about and talking about, which is, you know, in the phrase mutual abuse, it's a little bit of what they would call both sidesism, mm. good people on both sides kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And bad that, people on both sides. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and so the point of this article is that that phrase, you know, she doesn't really get into the gender swap of it. I mean, she kind of sidesteps the idea that in this case, the victim might be male, which is one of the most sort of upending and explosive ideas of the case. But she well, does want to push back on this phrase mutual abuse. And I think she makes a, a, a interesting mean, good point. It's 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 very complicated if he if we want to or if some people believe or if he turns out to be the the abused person. That is, I mean when I think one of our first episodes we were, I don't know if we called it, is this a referendum on me too? But if 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 that is the case, if it if if it that's what the jury deduces, um this is really 
this is really pro problematic or it really throws a big uh, wrench in trying to see Me Too as writing a lot of wrongs. I mean, the idea that men are not abused by women is just absurd. Of course they are. I'm also going to put in a little stump. I don't, I'm going to look up this article you're talking about, Lux Albrum, or I don't know. I've never heard of her. I don't know Lux who she is. Lux Albrum, I think. Something like um, that. I, I think there there are mutual abusive relationships. I mean, I believe I've seen are. them. And especially if there are drugs and alcohol involved, it just of becomes course. a very, very, very messy thing. Um, you know, it, we're really wrestling with the idea of whether or not women can be equal agents of... They, they, perpetrating violence and we seem really mixed up on that and but why would we be why would people why in god's name would a woman a man anyone want to say oh no women can never be agents of violence first of all this is absurd this is like when you say like children never lie it's like no, no children lie all the time that's what they do why would you want to take the agency away from a woman to be violent if she chose to be violent, okay, she's a violent person. That you know, that's how it is. There are violent women, and you know, Amber Heard. Maybe I have no idea if Amber Heard is one of them or not. But the idea to say like, well, she she couldn't be, she couldn't be the abuser in this relationship is I don't. I, this well, it's is, demeaning is, to women. It's demeaning is, to women. It's demeaning to the the woman's fullness of experience, and the fact that we are complicated individuals with. Ulterior motives, manipulative superpowers. I don't know if you've ever met a woman. Uh, incredible <laughs> compassion. Um, you know, depth and an ability to mask in public. I mean, women are, as far as I'm concerned, women are the fascinating characters. You know, the novelists were focusing on the wrong the wrong uh, gender for a long time because I just think women's inner machinations are just spectacular. But here we get into a problem. And terrifying. And, and terrifying. terrifying. And terrifying. And terrifying. And here we get into the problem of the court system where it flattens human behavior into one person's going to be found we're going to find in favor of one person and it means one person's guilty and one person's innocent. And we know very well from the old adage, it takes two to tango. It takes two people to make a relationship. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to hijack this just for one second. So I wrote a book. We mentioned it like in every episode um, to the bridge, a true story of motherhood and murder. And the woman was abused. She threw two kids off a bridge. The son died. Uh, it's it, Oregon is a capital. It was a capital offense in, in Oregon, which means she could go up for the death penalty. Well, you know, you talk to the victims' families and everything, and they decided they did not want to press for the death penalty. So they just basically heard things in court, and the judge sentenced her to 35 years before the possibility of parole. Okay. And everybody was saying, wow, that's really big of them. Really, really big of, you know, the father of the little boy and his family to not press for the death penalty. I'm going to tell you what. Had they gone for a death penalty, then it would have, you would have had to have a lot of stuff come out in court and in trial. Mm -hmm. And he was very guilty too of certain things. And he did not want his behavior yeah. exposed. So I don't know. Why you know, one of the weird things about listening to the herd trial, the Depp herd trial all the time is that I've started to internalize what it would sound like if certain things I wrote in text came out in court. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, like, yeah. Like, yeah. I'll, I was about to text you something last night and then I was like, ooh, if that was in court, I would have a hard time defending that, which is a really interesting thing to have internalized. And, and it's, it's one of the ways that a panopticon society sort of changes your social behavior. That's something that I would have felt very comfortable because it's just you and me. It's just you and me. I'm not worried about you. But suddenly I fear being sued, going to trial, information leaking. Um, or Twitter finding out. Or Twitter I mean, finding out. Right? I mean, and don't it, you? It, I just, if this were to be taken out of context, I would have a hard time explaining it. Now, it just so happens it was a stupid, dumbass thing about something that doesn't matter. So it doesn't, like, I just didn't text you. You know, it was like one of a hundred texts I didn't send. I sent you 99 and I didn't send you one yesterday. Uh, don't you remember when email first, you know, got super popular 20 whatever years ago? I remember hearing right away, like, do not put anything in an email that you do not want on the cover of the New York Times. And I pretty much Jeez. took that to heart. I didn't. Um, and in terms of, um, in terms of texting, yeah, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. For a second. Well, I'm, um, I'm just going to say that if my email threads end up on the cover of the New York Times, you guys are in for a saucy read. <laughs> spicy meatballs. It's a spicy meatball in there. Um. Oh, I know what I was going to say. We talked about this before. So, you know, Johnny Depp is not stupid and he's a grown up. And these, these texts that he had with Paul Bettany, I said to you, well, he has to have understood that at some point these might become public. So how... How considered are they? That's my question. Like, was he writing like Amber is a cunt or whatever it was that he wrote? And then, oh, sorry, mate, I'm going to cut off my finger or whatever it was. Was he doing this with some eye on the future? Because he's a public person. He's in this crazy relationship. You can't imagine that this is not going to become public. Like, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, but I, I think you cannot underestimate the blinding ignorance of a society that is still coming to grips with the new technology. And I know that it is absurd to call the internet a new technology, but in the oh, but, but in the is. long it arc is. of history, it is a new technology. And we have not sorted it out how, you know, its repercussions in our lives. And I think a lot of us have behaved as though we're bulletproof. Every time we see these photos of, you know, nude photos of women, of actresses leaked, what is the first question asked? Why did she do that? She had to have known that was going to leak. Well, I mean, why did I text and drive? Because I thought I could get away with it. I knew it happened to, to you know, I knew that that would, you know, uh, increase my chances of, of, a, of a crash. I thought I could get away with it because everybody else was doing it. But that's so, like, little... I just wouldn't underestimate that Johnny Depp might have felt a little bit bulletproof. And also Wait. that... A lot of us have been coerced into thinking that what we do and say is going to stay private. You know what? Because we believe we have some sort of right to privacy, which we'll talk about maybe in a minute if we can talk about the abortion case. And we're starting to learn that, like, maybe we don't. I, I think it's a little different, though. I think, like, texting and driving is, like, something I could get away with. I think it's sort of the opposite when you're sending a sexy, spicy picture of yourself. That's currency. It's like, oh, I've got this $5 bill in my pocket. I'm going to show it. I'm going to show I've got this do, five. It's, it feels so good. But, that, that, but that's 
that's the thing. I mean, you you remember we've talked about this before. The 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 novel of Fleischman is in trouble, and you know he becomes he's like forty years old or whatever, and he's a bachelor now, or he's he's on the dating scene in New York City, and he's like he can't stop getting pictures of women sending pictures of their cooches. It's like, why are they doing this? It's like, well, because I have something, I want to offer you something right now. Here, here's a muffin. Here's a, here's a $5 bill. Here's, you know, here's my phone number. Here's my cooch. Well, let me just say that my sexy selfies are about $20 bills. And I want to also say that they're never of my cooch. So just. Okay. I have never, I have not, I have never done that. I have never, I've never. Really? Of my, are you kidding? No, of course not. Oh my God, we're gonna have to talk about this at some point. <laughs> Again, this is like you're not you're not teaching me a new word. Yeah, you're we're gonna you're gonna move. take a sexy selfie and you're gonna put it on TikTok no. and then you're gonna do no. a keg stand <laughs> of Paloma and it's gonna be an amazing education. Um, uh, look, I mean, what this is really telling me is that you haven't been in the dating market for the last five to ten years, five thousand years. Yeah, yeah because no. it's okay, such I have, there, a mundane there, mundanity. Yeah. Okay, there might be a few maybe one or two top area shots. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, I keep it real PG-13 up in this place. But I'm just saying you can get very creative. And I am very specific about who I send these to. I've only sent them to like two or three men in my life. But... It's a twenty dollar bill. That's all. Um, At least a fifty. So let's let's jump now, which is an even more opaque situation to Fred Mm. Savage. So Fred Savage, as some of you might know, um, was the star of the Wonder Years. He played the kid. He was like 14 years old when he started. And um, I don't know when that show ended quite a while ago. And I guess he's been directing since then. And he just, I guess, last week was fired or let go as a director because, see if I'm getting this right, Someone in 2018 accused him of being, we don't know. We don't know who it was. Or it, was it was very vague. Very, so vague. very vague. He just so basically, vague. somebody said he was creepy and doing uncomfortable things and he got axed. In 2018. Am somebody I right? said it then, but he, it's more recently that he's oh, okay. been. Um, All right. You want to talk about if the Langella thing? Was a bit like, well, who was it? What exactly was it? Why has no one else said that? This is, there's nothing. Like, you can't find, I read that article twice. I'm like, what happened to who and when? Nothing. But it, but it's enough. Now, could it be the case that it's absolutely horrific? Could be. But we don't know. We All we get is the information that this person has been fired. It's like getting information like, that someone has been killed or someone has cancer, but you don't have any other context for this. So here's, you know, it's a, this Disney-owned TV studio, 20th Television. I guess that used to be like 20th Century Fox or whatever. But anyway, Deadline reports that this is what they announced, okay? Recently, we were made aware of allegations of inappropriate conduct by Fred Savage, and as is policy, an investigation was launched. Upon its completion... The decision was made to terminate his employment as an executive producer and director of The Wonder Years. That's it. That's it. That's it. And That's nobody's all doing. Nobody's doing interviews, and nobody's. But but what we know is that he was sued in 2019 when a crew member on the show The Grinder accused him of abusive behavior, and he der- denies any wrongdoing. Now, abusive behavior. You want to talk about an elastic term? 
You're talking about an elastic term? That could be he punched someone repeatedly. That could be he touched their shoulder. That could be he lost his temper. You know, I mean, Jesus. Well, I wonder, you know, here's the thing. I, I And I'm sure there are people um, um, doing some research on this. I actually have a friend who's a big film person. Maybe I'll, I'll ask her. But um, big meaning big writer about film and TV. Uh, I wonder if putting out this story with no information is just like, oh, there's another bowling pin down. Careful. Totally. Careful, everyone. Be careful because look, be careful. It could happen with no context. Context doesn't matter. Context doesn't matter. Context just doesn't the result. Matter. And this is why it just reminded me of this actress, Dorothy um, Cor. I'm going to get her name. Corin Cummingore. Cummingore. C-O-M-I-N-G-O-R-E. Who is this? I don't know who this is. She's the woman from Citizen Kane. And so oh, she's okay. like amazing in okay. this movie. And then after, during this whole like smear campaign, there are articles that come out that say she was involved in prostitution. <gasps> and she, you know, oh my she God. can't, you can't fight back back then. Like there's no social media. There's nothing. So it's just like these articles that like basically smear her as a former prostitute. Now, interestingly, if you know anything about actresses in Hollywood back then, it's not unthinkable that she had a little adjacency to the sex game, much like good old Marilyn yeah. Monroe and so many yeah. other women of that yeah. era. Yeah. Because there's a very strong overlap. But see, it's being it's being applied very directly to people they want to go away. And in her case, because William Randolph Hearst had it out for her, and th- and the name Citizen Kane was never allowed to be used in his papers, by the way. Talk about suppression of free speech by a media tycoon. And, you know, and then because she wouldn't name names. And so they started to smear her. And the thing is, the thing is, what's the end game? Why? Why do you need Fred Savage to go away? Why do you need Dorothy Corn Cummingore to go away? Like, why? Just because there's just not enough seats at the table? I guess because the people in power back in the day then when there was the studio system, you had like your, you know, your head of gabbler, whoever the, the oh, yeah, gossip the, columnists were. The gossip were. columnist. She you planted the, stuff about the people from Citizen Kane right, too. Right. So you had the people that you could go to to plant stories to get inconvenient people out of the way. And whether she was considered inconvenient because they actually thought she was communist or because they thought she was going to name their name or because she had a complaint or because she'd had an abortion from, you know, somebody that was in the studio system, it was very easy to drop some sort of, you know, a little birdie sings in somebody's ear and and it's done. I mean, you you made me think of Frances Farmer, which was a, it was a movie back before you and I were even uh, an actress before you and I were even born, but like really beautiful and gorgeous. And uh, she was problematic. And they um, they told all kinds of stories about her. And eventually, I think they lobotomized her. Um, yeah. They said she was mad. There was actually a pretty good movie with Jessica Lange and, and Sam yeah. Shepard. Um, they, may have, they may have even met on that movie. Oh, my God, what a beautiful couple they were. Um, so hot. All right. So it's the people that are in power, staying in power through uh, legitimate and illegitimate means. I think that is something of what we're seeing here. It's the people that want to be in power 
And right now, when we say power, we mean people riding the crest of whether you want to call it where we're making up for lost time in terms of people that women that have been, you know, taken advantage of in media or the studio system. We're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to have our way now and we're going to make up for lost time and, and we're not going to stand for even like the smallest amount of behavior. So they want to do this. And then the people within the, the studio system now, Netflix or whatever, they're kind of terrified of this and they want yeah. to sound like they're, they're being they're We're being better. We're better than our forebearers. See, see, we're going to take care of this stuff, but it's also because they're terrified. Also, a lot of them, as we all do have done not great things. Oh, like, God. I don't know, you slept with someone's husband or you, you cheated on a test or you did whatever. So you want to make sure that you, that your information is not going to get out there. And if that means, you know, quieting stuff that might be, might, come back at you, you're going to do it. I mean, it's incredibly cowardly, but uh, well, and I think we should say that a lot of this stuff and maybe one of the reasons why women, especially feminists are not turning their eye on Amber Heard at this moment is because there are other things that are really, really intense. And I wondered if we have about less than 15 minutes, I wondered if we could just talk a little bit about Roe v. Wade before we leave um, today's podcast. You know, the sense that culture is on fire, um, that the, our way of life is going down in flames. You know, there are, you and I have talked about some of the dramatic presentation on Twitter. Um, Mother's Day happened on Sunday and there were a number of very snarky tweets about, you know, is this, you know, happy forced birthday and meaning, meaning that there's been an interesting, whether it's comic or political or whatever conflation between you can no longer get an abortion and you are forced to give birth the idea of forced birth is super fascinating. Um, if you get pregnant, historically, nature forces you to have birth. I guess you could call that a forced birth. That's a very interesting take on the way that we all ended up here, which is through the f- quote-unquote forced births of our mothers, I sometimes feel like there is like a sense that nature is the fascist. Nature is the tyranny, you know, and that the only true liberation for women would be to get rid of that thing. I mean, there used to be feminist ideas of like outsourcing wombs so that you could finally get free of reproduction. Reproduction was was what tied us down as equal participants. And and yet at the same time it's what we do that is unique and beautiful in the world. You and I have spoken in moving terms about the tremendous gift that can be childbirth and motherhood. Um I, but, I'll, I'll add one yeah, thing there. Please. Um we've seen a lot um, of people saying, you know, you can't take women's freedom away. You cannot, I, I need, 
I need my freedom. I need to know that I'm going to have my freedom. And I just want to say something about that as someone who became a mother, you know, fairly young, younger than some of our friends. Um, I, my child gave me my freedom. All right. She gave me the world. And I'm not just saying that because she's like this amazing human, but she made me, it's like I, I lived in this world that was me. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't that you were just having a child in the world, but you had to be a grown-up in the world, which mm. meant that you had to figure out what you were going to do. I became a writer because of my daughter. Mm. I'm sitting here with you because I had my daughter, because I wanted to be home to raise my child. What could I do at home and make money? And I was lucky that I was good at it and I made money immediately. My child gave me my freedom. And I think when I when I only see people shouting, you know, I'm not talking about people uh, that their freedom is going to be robbed. I'm like, have you ever thought of it the other way? Right. Uh, because I am here to tell you that that exists. Now, I, I could be the only person in the world that this has ever happened to, but I kind of doubt it. Yeah. Um, and, and so I also, I read an interesting piece today um, by Andrew Sullivan and talking about how people who are shouting about how the court should be disbanded because they're so against women and women's rights and what women want. Why are you taking away what women want the most? And he's like, you know, not to be, you know, not to be the fact bearer here, yeah. but the largest percent of people in the country that are against abortion are women. Yeah. So absolutely. are they not allowed? Like what makes them less lesser women? What makes what they think lesser than what you believe. That's hugely inconvenient part of the pro-life movement is that it's mostly it's mostly run by women. And it's like, I I mean, we've talked about this before. I, I mean, you know, it's we, we, the last time we were on, it's like there's no room in the middle. Like you've got to be on, I'm not saying you have to, because most of the country is in the middle on this stuff. You know, most of the country like, you know what, I believe in women's right to choose, but I kind of think 12 weeks kind of makes sense to me. You know, like if people yeah. have like interesting opinions about this, but you, when you're all the way on one side or all the way on the other, it's just completely doctrinaire. And, and neither of those things really work for most of the country. Okay, I'm also just going to, I should have said this last week. I don't think they are going to overturn Roe v. Wade, and I haven't since the minute I heard this. Now, I, I don't know why I'm telling you that. That's just my gut. My gut is telling you it's not going to get overturned. I don't know why I'm saying that. I don't know if John Roberts is going to have something to do with it. But I do know that the people that are unhappy with this that are now saying, we got to get rid of the Supreme Court. We've got to go to stand in front of the justices' homes and scream and rent our breasts. This is not, we live in a country, guys, that has worked for a pretty goddamn long time because of our systems of checks and balances and voting and conversations. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. But you don't like this particular thing, so now you burn it all down when you are not the majority in this country. And I think they would do, I think everybody would do well to take that into consideration. And to listen a little bit and say, you know what, maybe there is room here, not just for what a lot of people are talking about. I don't know enough about it, about the 14th Amendment to say this was a stupid amendment to hang it on. We should have hung it on something better in order to, you know, make it more solid. Everybody's writing very well about that. I'm not one of them. Um, maybe we have to say, like, maybe there can be some compromise here. Maybe there should be, maybe there should be some compromise here that allows people to safely 
have an abortion when they need it or when they choose to have it. I want to make a plug for an outstanding podcast episode of Megan Downs, The Unspeakable, which I listened to last night. I love Megan and she's a friend of mine and she does a lot of great interviews, but this is a particularly important one. And this is with, um, Francis Kissling, who's known as the philosopher of the pro-choice movement. Um, she ran an abortion clinic in New York. She was, uh, she's Catholic and she was head of Catholics for choice for wow. a while. She wrote for me at Salon for a little while and she's super cool, total badass. From the very beginning, Francis has a calm tone and a sane and practical strategy, which is focusing on the states where it's legal and securing that abortion is available there. She speaks out, uh, kind of bemoans the last few decades of what she calls pro-choice triumphalism. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a great term. Fantastic term. That basically describes the idea that Roe v. Wade was settled law, that it was the, we were done, we had won. Um, she is extremely nuanced with depth of wisdom and insight and a self-awareness that I found incredibly beautiful and humble. At one point she said, we have lost because the world has changed. That's really as simple as that. 50 years had passed since the passage of Roe v. Wade, she doesn't really get into the legal vulnerabilities. She does mention them. Um, she is not interested in yelling on Twitter or burning down people's house. I'm sorry, the videos of protests outside Kavanaugh's place just gave me a dark thunderbolt. It's just, it's, it's, it's grotesque. Very I, I, grotesque. I, but she really wants us to think that we are, whether it's it's overturned or not, and I think your your prediction was very interesting, um, she's thinking about this, that we're operating in a post-Roe world. And it lasted 50, nearly 50 years, and it's done, and we're, we're on to the next phase. She wants to see changes like surgical abortions administered by nurses and trained technicians. That is completely possible. One of the problems we have is a supply problem because they're only allowed to be administered by doctors. There's no reason that has to be the case. No. Um, we need to extend uh, the access to abortion so that people can get it early and safely. Those were her terms. Increase access to abortion pills. Um we need to change a mentality from reestablishing Roe on the state level where it's just going to fail to focusing on a new goal that is getting women the abortions they need. I found this interview, which lasts a little bit over an hour, just to be incredibly like a balm. You know, it was like, oh, my God. Someone's someone speaking calmly and sanely. Imagine that. Um, you know, the world is going to continue to change. That 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 is fact. There is absolutely nothing that will be settled once and for all. And I think the uh, the link that you put to your Christopher Hitchens, the piece uh, mm. that you linked to, and that's exactly what I'm saying. It's not. It's not going to stay the same. I and love I want, that video. He calls certainty the poison chalice. Yes. Yes. And you want to continue to be interested in the next thing, to be curious about it. And as I as I said to a friend of mine the other day, the hardest thing to do is to try to stand still in a moving river. You can't do it. You will get swept downstream. So you might as well, you might as well go with it. 
and see what's going to be there. And I and I and I love what she said, and I agree with it. And I've thought that too. I've thought that about the states. We are going to have states where it's very, very, very legal. About 50%, just by the way. Right. Now, the argument you're going to get there is like, well, what if you're poor and living in Alabama? You know what I want to do for that state? I want to make sure that there's like tons of birth control there because that's something women can do for themselves. And I know it's not always the easiest and I know lust takes you in a way and I know there are terrible situations where you didn't even, we don't have to go into all the particulars. Um, But I think we can make it, we can make it, what is it? Rarely safely safely clean rare. So before we go, I want yes. to make a couple of corrections to the record. Sure. Which I think should probably be a, a portion of our of our podcast because I really like to get things correct. In our last podcast, I made two little factual errors that I want to correct. One is that I erroneously said that Justice Sam Alito had performed abortions. Um he has not. He is a legal, uh, he's a lawyer from the beginning. Uh, I completely misheard that on the fifth column podcast, because let me tell you something, I'm sure they weren't wrong. I do this bad thing of like texting while I'm listening to podcasts. And so I was like, I checked out. And then when I checked back in, I thought they were talking about Justice Alito. They were talking about somebody else. I am not blaming the fifth column. I'm just telling you, I came by that confusion. I've seen that though too on the internet several times, and I didn't look it up. I was like, "Wow, that's that's weird to me." I didn't, he, I didn't, didn't realize he'd been a doctor too. So I don't think it was that was the only place that that crossed your field of vision or your your hearing. Oh, just that's so you interesting. Know. Just so you know, and I'll because, we'll look that up. Yeah, I, I after somebody asked me about it, I tried to find it online and I couldn't find it anywhere. Okay. And his okay. background is entirely legal, except for a couple years that he spent in the armed forces, okay. which it would be, and he he definitely had some early decisions. Um, that were about, um, that were about abortions. So anyway, yeah, Matt Welch might know this better because he was actually the one that was talking. Um, so anyway, the other one is that I said that a very racy white mesh swimsuit that showed a woman's mm, beautiful tatas was Christy Brinkley. It was not, was Cheryl Teague's. Uh, Thank by the way, you. I looked for that image and I couldn't find it. And now I know exactly what the image you're talking about, the Cheryl Teague's one. I always got them confused, even in the 80s. Could I, not keep Cheryl Teague's and Christy Brinkley straight in my head. Well, Cheryl Teague's is quite, in my memory, is quite a bit older than Christy Brinkley. Yes. And the image is 1977. See, because I had yeah. it as Christy Brinkley. I had it in the early 80s. It's 1977, which puts it squarely at the same time as the Farrah Fawcett poster. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when Christy Brinkley became a model. That was the days when I was like reading Seventeen magazine and I just thought she was the cutest, cutest thing. She was so pretty. She's Christy cute as Brinkley, a button. So cute. Cute as a button. And But yeah. other than that, I was perfect and you were perfect. Okay. So I, done. We're done. I doubt it. I, I always forget what I'm saying in the middle of what I'm saying it. So definitely not perfect. So um, guys, uh, Sarah's going to be in Virginia. I'm going to be in Tulsa and then driving down the long way to Houston and getting over to maybe to Austin for an overnight. And uh, so wave if you see me on the road or if you see Sarah, are you going to bring we'll your talk mom? to them before that? Yeah, yeah, we? we're, yeah, we're going to do that. And we're going to um, actually uh, record from the road. I guess you and I are, I'll, I'll actually be in Tulsa the next time we, uh, the next time we talk. Oh, that's super so, cool. I yeah. just want to say, I just want to, um, in addition to saying hi to all our new listeners, which is super cool and, and friends that joined our party. I just want to say that I 
really like when people comment on our episodes. One of the things that I've noticed is that when people listen to us talk, they want to join our conversation. I love that. And what they often do, my friends at least, they text me about it. So they want to have texting conversations with me as they're listening to us. But as a busy (laughs) woman, I cannot always engage in these conversations with them. I want to encourage everybody that has that impulse to bring it into the comment section. I love interacting with our listeners in the comment section. I Um, do too. Yeah, it's really cool. Normally, comment sections are garbage. But we really want, I think think our listeners are of a higher, you know, tier than, than, uh, you know, because you have to... You have to subscribe to join this party and that's a barrier for entry and we attract like-minded people. And so, you know, I think it could be something that is really fun, which is a community of like-minded people trying to understand the world a little bit better. Um, And what we could maybe do in the future, we'll see. I remember the fifth column guys used to do it. They did one here is um, you actually can have a conversation. You can have a a Zoom where there's lots of people on it and people can talk. And that's kind of fun. Absolutely. So we'll we'll think about doing that um, in the future. So guys, thank you so much uh, for tuning in. I think this is like our ninth, um, I think our ninth uh, podcast. Number nine, we'll never be in single digits again. This is it. This is goodbye to single digits. I think our outro song that it'll be like Love Potion number nine or something like that. So go find out. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Nathan. Bye.